Hey friends, welcome to the Next Step Leadership Podcast, a conversation dedicated to helping you make your next step your best step. I'm Tracy Reynolds, and my partner for the Next Step Journey is Chris Maxwell. Together we hope to inspire, assist, and create the confidence you need to take your next step in your personal growth, spiritual growth, vocation, or even your calling. Thanks for joining us. Well, come on, let's dive into this week's episode of Next Step Leadership. Welcome again to Next Step Leadership. I'm Chris Maxwell, and I'm having a conversation with my friend Tracy Reynolds, and we are having a conversation with someone we feel like is a friend. Uh, Philip Yancey has written so many wonderful books, and our conversation with him is a reminder that there's hurt in this life, but there's hope toward healing in a variety of ways. Uh, Tracy, we need to hear this, don't we? Oh, what a powerful message. Uh, I just finished his, what he called his prequel uh, <laughs> to his life story, Where the Light Fell, and, and hearing uh, more of that is good. But I was so deeply touched uh, years ago by what's so amazing about grace. Um, I, and I appreciate the, the scarlet thread of redemption through mm. your writing, Philip, um, that uh, what sometimes could harden our hearts has been used to soften uh, and uh, the, the unearned, unmerited favor of God uh, it, as evidenced through your writing, but also through your life. Uh, I celebrate that, and I'm thankful. Thanks for this time. Hmm. Well, it's great to be with you guys. I feel like I'm kind of going back in town time because, uh, of course, I grew up in Georgia, not too far yeah. away from you, and can can picture the what it's like when you go to the grocery store and and Piggly Wiggly, you still have those down there? There are some of those, yes. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Well, I felt the same way reading your books because there are many, many places around the south side of Atlanta yeah. that, that I... And uh, so much about the faith, uh, being uh, around, you know, giving your life to Christ multiple times, just trying to follow Jesus as best you know how. And, and what I, I realize is that there are a lot of very sincere people around us who love us and care for us and do the best they, they can with what they have. And, uh, and we uh, look, can look back that on those things later in life and see the benefit of that. And uh, so that's part of what I see in Where the Light Fell. But later on in the book, you talk about going back and making amends. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what prompted that? And, to, and if you just tell us some of uh, where that came from and how that has affected you. It was prompted. I had a story in high school where I was really cruel toward a classmate who was a political zealot and wanted to reorganize our student body in in a way that mimicked the federal government of the United States. And I thought this guy was crazy. So I pretty much destroyed him very cruelly and crushed him. And Years later, I got a letter from him. I thought, oh, no, now he's suing me. You know, <laughs> I, I wrote about this story, and I, unfortunately, I used his first name, Hal. And opposite was true. He had gone into politics and was disillusioned and uh, went to Vietnam and came back, went through an ugly divorce. And then he found Jesus, and he was going through the people from his past and and reconciling with them. Mm. And he was basically telling me, I forgive you for what you did. And I was so touched by that and relieved, you know, it was such a wonderful feeling because I'd been carrying this guilt for years. I thought maybe I need to do the same thing. I was in the middle of writing my memoir. So I went back to some of the people who had 
hurt me and I had in some cases written about. And some of the things they did were, were plainly wrong. But I wanted to remove that barrier between us and I, I met with them. It was, it was very touching. The, the most uh, extreme fundamentalist type church I went to was, was in high school. We lived on the church property and it was mostly about hellfire and, and uh, sin. You know, that's why we heard yeah. m- maybe 100, 120 of us maximum who would gather every Sunday and, and uh, be lectured to, preached at. And, you know, we were all, we thought we were all safely in the fold, but we heard that hell, hell message every week, you know, <laughs> practically. And, and uh, I look back on it now, and I think, why, why do people come week after week and mm-hmm. just to be berated like that? And I realize church is a little bit like a dysfunctional family. Um, mm-hmm. we, we're in the middle of the holiday period. You go to Thanksgiving, you go to Christmas, and, and there's always some weird uncle or weird cousin, and maybe you haven't seen them for, for a year, maybe they haven't worn deodorant for a while or, or showered but you know it's thanksgiving he's he's the antsy so you invite him right. in and um i think that's the way it is with church too and and mm-hmm. when when a disaster happens or just normal life when a tornado hits like uh, often happens or um an alcoholic husband beats up his wife or uh, kids need a place to stay overnight for a temporary period or, or our house burns down. Where are you going to turn? But church. And, mm-hmm. and it's a flawed community for sure, but it's, it's where people are together. And I, I was able to go back and uh, some of the people I met with told me, well, especially some of the African-Americans who had been hurt by my church would tell me their stories of how they've matured and, and shown grace, and and of course the white community in, in the South has changed so much in, since my days, 50 years ago. And yet, oddly enough, some of those same issues are, are coming right back. I mean, I thought we had settled so much during the Civil Rights era, right. and we did settle it legally, but mm-hmm. we didn't really change the hearts of that many people. And uh, there's still a lot of work to be done, and, it, and often it is done in that kind of one-on-one way that I experienced when, when I had the opportunity to meet with these people and go over the past and through tears and laughter uh, try, to, try to break down some of those barriers over the years. Philip, what are some of the things that you think have stayed the same and some others that have changed? And I think I'm, I'm really more cons- thinking about what are the kind of things that we still need to address what are, mm-hmm. as believers uh, that that maybe we're not even aware that we're we're not trying to be offensive but but we are are not yet uh seeing through their their eyes or through their their, right. their skin color right when i was growing up there was an emphasis on being separate be, come out from among them and be ye separate be a peculiar people <laughs> it's a phrase from mm-hmm. first peter and in the old testament as well and the way we did that was through behavior, things we didn't do that other people did. And you could almost pick out the, the real Christians in high school by the old-fashioned clothes they wore, the lack of jewelry, makeup, you know, those, their skirt links, those kind of things. You know, that's how you judged who a Christian was. And, you know, there's something to that. Certainly that was true 
in the Old Testament when God was creating a culture known as, as, the, uh, as the Israelites, they were peculiar in that way. They didn't eat certain things, didn't eat pork, didn't eat scallops, um, lobster, things like that, some of my favorite food. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and then, of course, God removed some of that. Acts 10, the vision that he gave Peter saying, okay, that, that era is over because I'm turning this message loose to the whole world, not just one nation, yeah. not just one people. Now it's different. When, when we were growing up, the whole idea was to, to get saved and then to hang on until you die. You know, <laughs> the purpose right. was to, uh, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, mm. as the song goes. And so you just kind of grit your teeth, get through this life, and then you get to the other side and breathe a big sigh of relief, I made it, you know, now I can mm. have the good life. Well, I don't see that so much now. Mm -hmm. um, part of it is we're living a pretty good life right now, and people don't don't think so much about, oh, it'll be better one day. Mm. And uh, that's, that's what happens in prosperous countries. People, it happened to Israel. Every time they started getting prosperous, they would forget God. Mm. And it, it's funny how, how easy it is to forget God when things are going well. And, and the United States has, has experienced that. Now, now we're separating primarily along political lines, which mm. to me is really dangerous. Because when yeah. I look at church history... Whenever the church gets close to the state, it's the church who loses. Mm. They either get co-opted by the state. You know, we look, at, look at what's happening in Russia right now, where Putin's main ally is the Russian Orthodox Church. And uh, you know, they kicked out all non-Orthodox missionaries. And it, it's, a, it's a kind of nationalism. And there you hear a lot about Christian nationalism in the United States today, and I think that's a real danger. You, yeah. ask the real, you ask the average person in New York, what is an evangelical? And they say, well, that's somebody who voted for Donald Trump, because 81% right. of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. It, to me, that's getting it backwards. If we're primarily identified by Absolutely. somebody we voted for, we're missing what the gospel... Jesus didn't talk about, let me introduce yeah. myself. I, I am a friend of Caesar, you know. <laughs> In fact, he was, if anything, rather distant, almost scornful. Given to Caesar what's Caesar's, and unto God what's God's. Or he called Herod that fox. You know, he kept his distance from politics, and uh, so I, I, it's a whole new era. And I think uh, it's a it's a dangerous era because it's so attractive to be part of the power machinery, mm -hmm. and then when you do that. As, as Martin Luther King says, uh, you're no longer the conscience of the state. We're, the church is not supposed to be the ally of the state. It's not supposed to be the opponent of the state. It's supposed to be the conscience of the state. And sometimes the state gets things wrong, and sometimes it gets things right. And if you're committed to the kingdom of God, you can have that objectivity to judge whether you support a policy or not. Not because you're a Republican or because you're a Democrat but because it aligns with the values of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And, and um, those aren't political issues mm -hmm. and, and can't be solved by political means. Yeah, it seems like so many people are uh, living with or controlled by fear. Uh, we're so mm -hmm. afraid of what might be that we allow that fear to turn us into being something we shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, instead of dealing with fear, we want to, 
control it in some way, yeah. an election or some business we structure or, or lead. Right. Yeah, there's a beautiful verse in Second Peter chapter 1. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. And then he, he gives this triad, this beautiful summary. He said, but a spirit of, of power and love and a sound mind. And when you think about it, if you have power without love, that's really dangerous. Yep. Yeah. If you have love without power, that's not very effective. You don't, you don't change much. But if you have love and power together, governed by a sound mind, and Peter goes ahead and describes what that means, that's powerful. And that's what we should be, we should be uh, working toward. But back to the first part of the verse, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Perfect love casts out fear, the Bible mm-hmm. says elsewhere, I think in 1 John. And one, one of the things that troubles me, I guess, about what we've gone through in this pandemic is that if there's ever a time when the church could have represented what Paul calls the father of compassion, the mm-hmm. God of all comfort, it was during this global crisis where almost everybody in the world was affected. And how did Christians respond? With compassion and unity? No. <laughs> With division and fear. Yeah. And, you know, some of these conspiracy theories, the surveys show that Christians are some of the ones most vulnerable to the conspiracy theories. Mm. And uh, that's sad. We should be unafraid, and we should represent that Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, so that people would say, oh, I'm not feeling very well. I'm going to go go find a Christian. They'll they'll have an answer. They'll know what to Mm -hmm. say. Right. It hasn't happened much in, in the, from what I've seen anyway. Yeah, and it should, though. It should be us that, that are that helping lead them beside still waters. And, mm. well, it, take us back a little bit um, of the, uh, as you wrote about your mom, as you wrote about your brother, uh, conversations you had with them, you know, their stories, where they are. It's just so different from where you are. So mm. talk to us a little bit about them. Right. Um, my mother got a, got a bad shake in life. She, was, uh, she had a very oppressive family growing up in Philadelphia, six kids in this tiny little rural house, and uh, just almost like a Charles Dickens <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, setting. And then um, a, a knight on a, white ho- on a white horse came riding up, and that was my father, who was in the Navy, so he met her when he went home after church uh, while he was still in, in basic training in the Navy. And then as soon as he got out, they planned a wedding and hoped and planned to be missionaries in Africa. They had several thousand people praying for them, agreeing to support them. They were ready to go. That was in the middle of another pandemic, very different pandemic, yeah. polio. It mostly affected children, very cruel. In this case, though, uh, my father was 23 years old, and he got sick overnight and was paralyzed, couldn't move any part of his body, and spent two months in an iron lung. Mm. Couldn't even breathe. The, The machine breathed for him, forcing air in and out of his lungs. Well, the people who were supporting them and praying for them decided couldn't possibly be God's will for, for God to take, in quotes, to take somebody who had such a future ahead of him. Mm. 
So maybe he would be healed. In fact, didn't, didn't the Bible promise that? Surely God would heal him. And so against all medical advice, they took a leap of faith of removing him from that mm -hmm. iron lung and um, putting him in a little clinic that really wasn't equipped to deal with polio patients. Mm -hmm. He showed a little bit of improvement for about two weeks, and then he died. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't really learn the secrets of what was going on, especially about the, the faith healing till I was a teenager, till I was about 18 years old in college, and I came across an article in the Atlanta Constitution that spelled out details I'd never been told. And as a result of that, my mother, I'm sure, felt great remorse, felt guilt, I would imagine, and she responded to that by giving her sons, that would be my brother and me, mm -hmm. in, a, in a prayer much like Hannah offering Samuel uh, to, to God, to fulfill what they were unable to do, be missionaries in Africa. And that got more extreme, and, and it, it was a sacred vow to her, but it became more of a curse to my brother. Mm -hmm. He was a brilliant musician and was going on a different path, and, and uh, he made some life choices that just infuriated her, and, and she really did literally curse him. And uh, he still lives under that. He's, he's disabled now. Interesting, I tell the story of the rupture, and I was caught in between, have been all my life. But even since the memoir, there have been some steps toward uh, connecting. Mm -hmm. um, they, had not, they have not seen each other in almost 52 years, had not even heard each other's voice. And I got them on a telephone conversation twice, a three-way conversation, didn't go particularly well. But then later, my brother wrote a, a three-word message to her in a card. And it, it just said, I forgive you, mm. which I would never have predicted. Wow. <laughs> he was so bitter and so angry about everything in the past. And I, here I thought this memoir was going to kind of seal the rupture in my family forever. And <laughs> actually, it, <laughs> it seems to have gone in a different direction. There's, there's still hope. There's still grace. Mm. And um, I hold that out for other people because I've just I've heard from a lot of people since the memoir has been out a couple yeah. months, and they tell me their own family stories. They're just yeah. a lot of pains, a lot of wounds, and when you keep burying those wounds, they never get mm -hmm. healed. You got to bring them into the light where That's the right. light fell, and. Mm -hmm. um, in, in ways I, I would not have predicted God continues to work, and I think he honors our, our uh, attempts to reconcile. Very clear, we're told, be reconcilers. That's what, that's what your job is here on yeah. earth. Be reconcilers. Even love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. You don't find that in, in any other great leader, any other religion. He just takes it as far as you can do. But uh, it works, and I, I've seen it work Amen. in my own family. Mm. Well, I mean, think about how those who read this can take the initiative to visit painful parts of their story right. and no longer be controlled by it. I like to uh, yeah, let's but, not let the pains from the past control our present and future mm -hmm. decisions. That's well, great. I don't want that to be just a statement I make or something I write about. I want, I, I want to right. live with that in mind. And people reading your book, it can be... It can remind them, okay, I have to hit rewind. I have to go back to some of those pains 
and deal with them in a healthy way yeah. because denial just lets it grow bigger and stronger. Right. So agreed. And the power, too, of, of shared story, mm-hmm. of taking the time to, to enter into the story of another. Um, it makes people so much more real, so much more vulnerable. And, and we've talked about this so many times that people relate so much more to our vulnerabilities yeah. than they do to our, quote, conquest, or yeah. as you were sharing earlier. That, uh, and I want to be remembered as that person, not only whom Christ loved, but whom Christ loved through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and if they can remember Chris and Tracy as people of compassion who cared, you know, I, I often reflect, right. I'm not the smartest guy you'll ever meet, but I care. And Christ <laughs> in me uh, just like calls us to, to somehow, uh, as now and call us, as wounded healers, mm. uh, people that are fractured whom somehow God allows his light to shine through mm-hmm. those fractures. When I first started this project, I had never written a memoir before. All my books are kind of the same style. And this is going. This was going to be different. It wasn't an idea book. The story book. So I started reading different memoirs. I read several hundred. And the reason I kept reading is that every single book I read, some of them were really badly written, not worth my time, but every single book that I read prompted a memory, triggered a memory in me that I would not have ha- had if I hadn't read that book. And I learned that what memoirs do, unless you're reading about somebody famous, you know, a president or a sports figure or something, what memoirs do is teach you about yourself more than about the writer. Um, Mm. I mean, I I tell about playing baseball and learning to read and stuff like that. Nobody cares about that. (laughs) But, But when they read my story, their own brain, their own mind is recalling what it was like for them Mm -hmm. in first grade, second grade, high school, that first day in high school. And the the story, the letters that I get, the emails that I get, they're not about my story so much. They're about other people's story. Mm -hmm. And my my story is more extreme than a lot of people, the extreme situation in my family and certainly the extreme church. And so it gives people permission to to look at theirs. Well, mine wasn't as bad as that, but... (laughs) what do I need to co- to come to terms with, you know? Yeah. And and I do want it to be a, a beacon of hope for people who haven't taken that look and, and yeah. opened those vulnerabilities and those wounds that you mentioned. Wow. Well, we thank you so much for opening up yours. Yes. And let us, uh, letting us have a glance into your life. Uh, I'd like for you to do uh, us one more favor. Uh, okay. Actually, actually, two more. Just remind everybody how they can pick up a copy of your book. And we usually end our talks at this podcast with this phrase, let your next step be your best step. I want that to come from you this time instead of us. I want you to just do the closing um, because your words, um, they were, your words mean a lot to us and to so many people. Um, so even in the pain, we believe that people can find ways to let our next steps, even if we're limping, even if we're in pain, <laughs> be, the, be, be better steps than we thought they could be. Very good. Yes, you can find out about me on my website, which is just philipyancy.com, and it tells you all of my books, and you can look at where to get them at the very best price. The book we've been talking about is a memoir called Where the Light Fell. It's my story of growing up in Georgia in a what I call a toxic church in a strange family, and 
finding a way through. And I, I hope this book and I hope this program itself, this podcast, is, is something that can prod you to face into what needs to change, what needs to be faced into in your life. And I hope and I pray that you would let the next step be the best step. Thanks for joining us on Next Step Leadership, the weekly conversation dedicated to your personal growth and leadership development. Chris and I are so glad you dropped in. You can find us on all your favorite podcast providers. Do us a favor and hit subscribe. And if you really want to help us, give us a rating. We so appreciate your support. Chris Maxwell is the author of 10 books, including Pause with Jesus, Underwater, A Slow and Sudden God, and his latest book of poetry, Embracing Now. You can find links to all of his work and our social media information at our website, nextstepleadership.buzzsprout.com. Our featured music is by Casual Americans. Their debut single is coming October 29th. Follow them on Instagram at Casual Americans to learn more and pre-save their new song, Somebody Famous. We release Next Step Leadership each Thursday. So join us again next week on The Next Step Journey, a conversation dedicated to helping you make your next step your best step. Sweet nothing's fair.